0: To you. We're going to continue uh, this morning in our study through the parables of Matthew chapter 13. And as one thing, if I don't know if you've noticed as we've gone through these texts that sometimes biblical texts, um, they're not easy, are they? They're not necessarily always easy to understand what is actually being said. And that's one thing about the parables is on the surface, when you read these, the the stories are fairly straightforward. I mean, we, we can get the pictures of what Jesus is saying and and all of those kind of things. But those people that say that that Jesus used parables so that He could break things down as simply as possible so that we could understand exactly all the teaching that He was trying to get from that, the people who say that Jesus used parables to do that, they I don't think they've really even read them. Or at least they've just read them at that kind of surface level where you can kind of get an idea of what's going on, but you don't really understand what's going on. The stories, like I said, the stories themselves are easy enough, but trying to figure out exactly what Jesus is teaching with these stories can sometimes be, be pretty tricky. I, that's really, I've shared with you before, but that's really come to light in my studies for these sermons. How many different interpretations there are out there of these different parables, these different stories. I've been surprised at all the number of the different understandings of these parables. Now we've spent a few weeks studying these parables, and and, you know, on Sunday mornings we spent a little bit of time on Sunday nights, our Sunday night time has been interrupted some, but we've spent some time on Sunday nights. Hopefully you've been spending some time on your own reading through these and at least trying to digest what we've been talking about as we've been studying these all along. But even with all of that, even with all of our study in here and your self-study and even maybe what you brought to the table before we started studying, even with all of that, how many of you, and don't raise your hands, but how many of you can honestly say you've come to the point where you completely and fully understand each of these parables that we've been looking at. I I know that I can't. Uh, You know, we, we have the understanding that we've been bringing out, but to say we understand all of the depth and all of the implications, I don't think we can say that. I can't say that. Because there's always more to learn, isn't there? And one of the things that I hear from folks as they read the Bible over and over and over again, it's not like if you read a novel over and over and over again. If you read a novel more than once or maybe more than twice, you've exhausted everything that's in there. But you can read the Bible over and over and over again and you never exhaust the depth of Scripture. So I don't think that we can ever get to a point where we say that we fully understand everything that Jesus is teaching here, because there's always more to learn, and certainly, more than just on an academic level, there is certainly more that we need to apply, amen? We always need to do more with what we know. That's why I think it's fascinating how Jesus starts our passage tonight. It's tonight, listen to me, I don't even know what time of the day it is. <laughs> I think it's fascinating the way Jesus starts our passage this morning. He starts by asking the disciples, He said, okay, um, do you guys understand everything I've been teaching you here? (laughs) Let's look at our passage again in verses 51 and 52. He says, have you understood all these things? And they said to Him, yes. And He said to them, therefore, every scribe who has been trained for the kingdom of heaven is like a master of a house who brings out of his treasure... What is old or what is new and what is old it's like okay, you think you got that now see if, see if you can wrap your arms around this one. See what Jesus says there in verse fifty one now re- remember he's he's been he's been teaching his he's been focusing his teaching on his disciples if you remember the the scene that we've set up or that this passage is set up. As we've gone along, the first four parables he taught as he was standing on the edge of the sea. And there was this vast group of people that he was teaching to, that he was saying these parables to. But he wasn't directing his, even though he was directing his words at them, he wasn't directing his teaching at them because he was always turning aside to the disciples to explain what he was saying. And then after the first four, then they just moved inside. And Jesus just directly taught His disciples there. Back up in, <clears throat> in verse 11, after the disciples asked Jesus why He was teaching this way, why why Jesus, why are You teaching in these parables? Back up in verse 11, He said, to you, speaking of His disciples, He says, it's been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of heaven, but to them, that vast crowd, it's not been given. In other words whether Jesus was telling these stories in front of the crowd, outside, or whether he was telling them to the disciples inside, the the teaching was for the disciples. And as followers of Jesus Christ, as disciples ourselves, the teaching is for us as well. That's who he was teaching to. And here in verse 51, he looks at his disciples and he says, y'all get it? Y'all understand what I've been teaching you? Don't you just love their answer? Bless their hearts. They said, yeah. Oh, yeah, we get it. Now, don't get me wrong. I don't think the disciples were lying when they said that. I think that they, like many of us, when we start to study a passage of Scripture, we can say, yeah, I, I, I think I think I get it. They they might have thought that they understood, but their understanding certainly wasn't complete. And we know that their understanding wasn't complete because as you go through the rest of the Gospels, especially as you go through the rest of the Gospel of Matthew, Matthew, when we see that their understanding wasn't complete because almost immediately they started arguing with Jesus about when Jesus said that He had to go to the cross and die. They started arguing with Him and said, no, Jesus, don't don't do that. And not only would they argue with Jesus, they would argue with each other. Remember the times when the disciples would argue with each other about who was going to sit where in the kingdom of heaven and who was going to be the greatest in the kingdom of heaven and all of that? So they might have thought that they understood this principle of the kingdom of God, but they really didn't get it yet. Otherwise, they wouldn't have acted that way. No, their understanding wasn't complete, but they did understand what they understood. And I think we understand what we understand. But the most important thing was, at this point in time, they not only understood up here, but they began to apply what they did understand. And see, any study of Scripture, if you understand it up here, that's one thing but we're called to do something with what we know. Amen? You see, it's our problem is rarely that we don't understand the words on the page. Our problem almost always is that we don't do anything with what we do understand. It's not like God's trying to fill our heads up to the point where we're theological geniuses, big old theological eggheads. No, it's so that we will walk with Him, so that we will love each other, and so that we'll serve each other, and so that we'll proclaim the gospel. Should we work hard to understand what God's teaching us in His Word? Of course we should, but not so that we can win a trivia contest or not so that we can out-argue somebody about Scripture, so that we can get a big old fat head. No, we don't please God with how much we know. We please God with what we do with what we do know. And the main thing that God calls us to do is to make disciples. The main thing that He calls us to do is as we follow Christ, to bring others along to follow Christ with us. If you're a follower of Jesus Christ, Then he calls you to make more followers of Jesus Christ. That's what our main task is. Now, before we get down to how to do that, I need to explain some of the things that we see in these, (coughs) in these two verses. And y'all forgive me for this. It's not a cold. I'm done with the cold. It's just like stuff hanging around. So forgive me for that. But we need to, we need to explain some of the details that are going on in this parable, just to kind of clear it up in our head. First, in verse 52, Jesus uses the word scribe there. Okay, now we're familiar with the word scribe, right? If, if you read through the first four books of the New Testament, you see all of the times that Jesus kind of went toe-to-toe with <clears throat> these groups of people, the Pharisees and the scribes. That's the technical use of this term. Jesus isn't using this word in that way. He's not talking about this group of people called scribes. What he's talking about is what the scribes were supposed to have been. See, what the scribes had become in Jesus' day is they the Pharisees were the ones who were legalistic, works-based, works-based righteousness kind of people. But in order to do that, they had to have these lawyer-type people. Forgive me if anybody's a lawyer but um, they had to have these lawyer-type people to define the law. And not just define the law, but define the loopholes in the law so that they could find the right loopholes and still be followers of the law. That's what the scribes had become. But what Jesus is talking about is having the attitude being the kind of person that the scribes were supposed to have been. Now, the scribes were supposed to have been people who were continual learners of God's Word. They were supposed to be absolutely absorbed with God's Word. They were the kind of people that could be described by the 119th Psalm. They lived by the law. They cherished the law. They cherished the Word of God. That's what they were supposed to be. And as they learned it, they would interpret it and they would apply it. They would live by what they learned. And on top of that, the scribes would then take what they were learning and take what they were living and they would teach others so that others could follow as well. That's what the scribes that Jesus is describing here, that's what they were supposed to be, that's what the scribes that Jesus confronted all the time, that's what they were supposed to be doing. And the scribes that Jesus is describing here, that's their kind of attitude. In other words, Jesus is describing what all of us as believers, what each of us as believers is supposed to do. We're supposed to feast on God's Word. We're supposed to train ourselves, fill our hearts with God's Word so that we can live God's Word, so that we can teach God's Word, so that we can bring others to follow God's Word as all, as, as we do. Isn't that why we gather here? I mean, you think about why we gather Together in church. There are all kinds of reasons you ask people, why why do you go to church? And they can come up with a whole list of different reasons. But the primary reason that we gather together in God's house on a regular basis is so that we can be fed what God is telling us in His Word. That's our primary reason for gathering so that we can be fed together what God is telling us in His Word. We learn what He's telling us in His Word so that through the power of His Spirit, we can be changed by what we learn. And as we go out of this place, we're fully equipped to take what we've learned and teach it to others through not just our words, but through our walk as well. So in that way, if you're a believer, then you're a scribe who's been trained in the kingdom of heaven. By the way, that word that Jesus uses, "trained," there in verse fifty-two—that's the verb form of the word "disciple." Matheteo. Man, my tongue is just my tongue's still in Alabama, (laughs) but it's the verb form of the word that's often translated as "disciple." So as a believer here at Parkview Baptist Church, you are a scribe who is being discipled so that you can in turn make disciples. You're being trained as a disciple so that you can go out and make disciples. Do you understand all these things? <laughs> neither do I. Neither did, the, neither did the disciples, even though they said they did. Because understanding manifests itself in what we do, Right? But the point is as a scribe you live what you know and you bring out what you know see where Jesus says that about bringing out what you know is your treasure now don't get confused here one of the things that we've seen as we've gone through these parables is in one parable something can have a certain meaning and then in the next parable it can have that same thing can have a slightly different meaning like seeds have had different meanings in different parables and sowers have had different meanings in different parables. And here we see the word treasure. So immediately that makes us want to jump back up to verse 44 when Jesus is talking about the man who found a treasure hidden in his field. Well, the treasure that the man found hidden in his field is, uh, is likened to is describing Jesus or describing salvation. He is the treasure that's found in the field. Here, the word treasure that Jesus is using is more like the container that the treasure is held in. Probably a, a, a translation that that would get more of the feel of that would be if we use the word treasury. He brings out of His treasury. So the treasury is the storehouse. It's the container that holds the precious, priceless treasure of the gospel in our lives think about it this way as you spend time in god's word as you spend time praying as you spend time with other brothers and sisters in christ as you spend time with your church family every time that you do those things you're making deposits into your treasury but the point of your gospel treasury isn't so that you can have a big old fat gospel treasury bank account that you carry around it's not like you're filling up a gospel treasury mason jar that you go bury in the backyard somewhere. No, the purpose of building up your gospel treasury is so that you can bring out those treasures, so that you can share those treasures, so that you can disperse the treasures that are stored in your treasury. The point is is to invest in the lives of others. So what does Jesus mean when he says that we bring out what's new and what's old? So we've got the we've got the treasury, and we've got that we're supposed to bring things out of the treasury. What does he mean by bringing out things new and things old out of our treasury? Now if that's confusing to you, uh, just stand in line because there's a lot of people that really get confused on this and there's all different kinds of really smart people are all over the place on this. But I really don't think it's that complicated because remember what we're talking about here and remember why Jesus was teaching these kingdom parables in the first place. He was teaching these kingdom parables because this is a transition. The kingdom had been mediated through God's chosen people, Israel. And now with Jesus and after the resurrection, that his kingdom on earth was going to be mediated through his local churches. He was explaining that the kingdom, that God's kingdom on earth was going to look different than it had in the past. But just because it was going to look different, It's all part of the treasury. It's all still part of God's plan. There's not this huge division. It's not like the church is God's plan B. And it's not like the church supersedes or replaces God's kingdom plan through Israel. See, we still believe the Old Testament. Amen? The Old Testament is still God's Word. The God that is described in the Old Testament is still the same God that is described in the New Testament. The Old Testament, we believe the Old Testament because we believe that the Old Testament, the teachings in the Old Testament and the events of the Old Testament prepared us for Jesus. We still teach the Old Testament because the Old Testament teaches us of Jesus we're still blessed by the Old Testament because Jesus fulfilled everything that was required in the Old Testament. In Luke 24, Jesus, after the resurrection, He was walking along the road with the men uh, walking on the road to Emmaus with a couple of men. Remember that? And as He was walking along that road, He didn't reveal to them who He was, so they didn't look at Him and see that they were walking with Jesus. But as He was walking with them and they were saying how sad that they were that Jesus had died, Jesus begins to lay out and preach Himself from the Old Testament. He taught the Old Testament from start to finish and when He got done with that, they realized, oh, that's You. Uh, We love the Old Testament because it teaches us of Jesus. We do the same thing that Jesus did as He walked along the road to Emmaus. We bring out of our mental treasury all the new teachings about God's kingdom from the New Testament and all the foundational teachings about God's kingdom from the Old Testament. This whole book of the Bible from cover to cover is about Jesus. Amen? We learn it, we live it, we store it in our treasury, and we bring it out. No matter how much or how little you understand about it, Jesus is calling you to make disciples with what you have. Alright, if you walked through that verse and you saw how we highlighted different things in there to explain, we skipped one thing. Did you notice that? We talked about scribes. We talked about being trained. We talked about our treasury. We talked about what's new and what's old. Uh, We skipped the master of the house, didn't we? Actually, in this case... Um, If you use a King James Bible, the King James translation is actually, really it's more accurate than any of the other translations that I looked at in this because it includes a word that the rest of the translations leave out. In the King James it says, a man that is a householder. Now if you're using an ESV or whatever and you don't mind writing in your Bible, you might write that in there. A man who is a householder the word that's translated master of the house or householder, it literally means household ruler. Ruler of your home. Head of your household. And like the King James says, the original puts man in front of it. So here's a good paraphrase of what verse 52 says. Every believer who's been discipled is like a man who is the head of his household. The man who is head of his household will use all the biblical understanding he stored up over his time as a believer to make disciples. The man who is head of his household will make a disciple of his wife. The man who is head of his household will make disciples of his children. The man who is head of his household will make disciples of his grandchildren. The man who is a head of his household will make disciples of his co-workers. The man who is head of his household will make disciples of his neighbor's and the nations. So let's get personal here. That's what you're waiting for, right? Today's Father's Day, right? You've got the cool little pocket knife to prove it in case you doubt that that it's Father's Day. So men, in this passage, Jesus is talking specifically to us. Now, He's not talking only to us, so ladies, don't you just check out on us. But He's talking specifically to us as men. Despite what our culture tells you, you are a man. And as a man, God has ordained that you are head of your household. So as a man and as head of your household, Jesus is telling you that you've got three primary responsibilities From this passage. Your first responsibility as a man, as a head of your household, your first responsibility is to be discipled. Men, your wife is not the head, not the spiritual head of your household. You are. You know, it says something that Mother's Day is typically the one of the highest attended church services in the calendar. And Father's Day is typically one of the least attended services in the calendar. You want to please Mom on Mother's Day, go to church with her. You want to please Dad on Father's Day, go to the lake with him. Men, brothers, that ought not to be so. And I appreciate you men who make a priority of being in God's house. Verse, verse 52 talks about every scribe who has been trained. That means that you're actively seeking to be trained. That means you're actively being a disciple. Now we throw that word around a lot here. We talk about disciples and disciple making, but we don't define it. I think, I think sometimes I throw it out uh, with an assumption of everybody knowing what that means. I shouldn't assume that. Being a disciple, are you ready for the technical theological definition of what it means to be a disciple? Are you ready for that? might need a pen. This is really complicated. It means you follow Jesus. Right? Being a disciple means that you follow Jesus. But think about it. If you're going to follow somebody, two things have to happen. The first thing is, if you're going to follow somebody, you have to know them. So before you can think about anything else, you need to get this part nailed down. Do you know Jesus? Jesus is the Son of God who came in the flesh. Jesus lived a perfect, sinless life. He did something that neither you nor I could ever possibly attain. He endured every temptation imaginable, yet He did it without stumbling or sinning. Jesus passed every test that was set in front of Him. Every test that you and I have failed and continue to fail. But not only did Jesus live a life that you and I could never live, He died the death that you and I deserve. On the cross, Jesus took all of the punishment for all the sin that you and I and everybody else has ever committed. The Bible says that Jesus became sin for us so that we could become the righteousness of God in Him. Jesus died the death that we deserve, and He lives today to give us new life in Him, clothed in His righteousness, a righteousness that we could never possibly earn. And He'll give you that new life in Him when you trust Him, when you follow Him, when you know Him by grace through faith. So that's the first question you got to get ironed out. Do you know Jesus? If you do, that means that you're going to take up your cross and, help me out, take up your cross and follow him. That means that you are his disciple. That means that he is your Lord. He is your master. He's your king. It's not a separate thing from your salvation. It is your salvation that you follow him as Lord and master and king because subjects follow their king. Are you following Jesus? Are you taking advantage of every opportunity to be trained to follow Him? Are you studying His training manual that He's given us, His training manual, the Bible? Are you doing more than studying it? Are you doing what it says to do? So that's your first responsibility. Are you being discipled? Your second responsibility is to be a man. Now, who would have ever thought that we got to a place in the world where that would be a controversial state but that 's where we find ourselves isn 't it? Jesus says that the kingdom of heaven is like a man who is ruler of his household now the Greek word that that comes from anthropos it can be translated depending on the context it can be translated as personal as person sometimes you know men and women or something like that but In the context, specifically here, it means men. These days of toxic masculinity, it's easy to forget how to be a man, isn't it? And I think sometimes, guys, um, we might try to overcompensate in other ways from that. Guys, the reason toxic masculinity is a thing is because we haven't been the men that God called us to be. By the way, being a man is not being a jerk. Being a man is not being a dictator at home or on the job. It's not hiking up your britches and puffing out your chest and saying, because I said so. That's not what it means to be a man. Being a man is not being known for your sexual conquests. That's being a dog, not a man. Amen. At its most basic level, being a man is like, is being like the man. The God man, Jesus Christ. Being a man is being like him, is following him is being like him. It, it, being a man means that you're going to display selfless, sacri- self-sacrificing love to others, especially to your family. It means that you're going to be full of joy, the kind of joy that only comes from a vibrant walk with Christ. It means that you're going to be at peace and you're going to bring peace wherever you go. You're, going to, you're not going to be ready to fight at the drop of a hat. You're not going to fly off the handle at every little thing. You're going to display peace. Peace. People are going to be at peace when they're around you, not full of tension and anxiety when you walk in the room, especially your family, especially your kids. Being a man means that you're going to be patient. Think about how much junk Jesus puts up from you and me. And if we're going to be Christ-like, that means that we need to put up with that same kind of junk from others. means you're going to be patient. If you're going to be Christ-like men, then we better be willing to put up with a whole lot of junk from the people around us. Even if it's our families. Being a man means you're going to be kind. Like I said, you're not going to be a jerk. Being a man means you're going to be a good person. Being a man means you're going to be faithful. You're going to do what you say you're going to do. When you tell your kids you're going to be somewhere, you're going to do your level-headed best To be there. When you tell your wife you're going to be faithful to her, you're going to be faithful to her even with your eyes. You're going to keep your marriage bed undefiled. Being a man means you're going to be gentle. You're not going to be harsh and gruff and sarcastic and snarky. Being a man means that you're going to exercise self-control. If there's an attribute that is sorely underutilized in our world today it's the attribute, the fruit of the Spirit, self-control. Being a man means you're going to exercise self-control. You're going to exercise self-control in your sex life. You're going to exercise self-control in your spending habits. You're going to exercise self-control in your recreation. You're going to exercise self-control in your thought life. Self-control over your body, over your mind, and over your tongue. No matter what your culture is telling you today, that's what it means to be a man. So being a man means that you're going to be like Jesus. You're going to rule your home like Jesus. You're going to serve your wife and family like Jesus serves the church. You're going to model Jesus at work. You're going to model Jesus in the community. Are you being that kind of man? Finally, your third responsibility is to be a disciple-maker. If you're going to be a man, you're going to be a disciple. You're going to model Jesus. You're going to be a man, and you're going to be a disciple maker. Jesus said, every scribe who has been trained for the kingdom of heaven is like a master of a house who brings out of his treasure what is new and what is old. When you're a disciple, when you're a man, then you best not keep it to yourself. See, Jesus isn't filling your treasury so that you can keep your blessings to yourself. Jesus is filling your treasury so that you can be a blessing to others. Just as you're called to be a disciple of Christ, He's calling you to make disciples of Christ. Are you making disciples of your children? Are you making disciples of your making a disciple of your wife? Are you making disciples of your grandkids? Are you making disciples of your friends and your co-workers and your neighbors? Now, even though Jesus is focusing this parable on men, ladies, much of this applies to you too. So I hope you didn't check out on me. And ladies, it's especially true of you if you're in the situation where you are the head of your household. Listen, Jesus calls all of us to be discipled, Amen? Jesus calls all of us to display the fruit of the Spirit. Jesus calls all of us to make disciples. So I'm going to close with the same question that Jesus asked His disciples. Do you understand these things? I'm not asking if you completely understand every possible theological nuance of everything that the Bible has to say. I'm asking you if you're ready to move forward with what you do understand. Today's the best day I know of to start moving forward with what you already know. And quit using the excuse that you don't know enough. Do you understand these things? Then do them.